research worker, the unforgotten moments of her life are those rare ones which come after years of plodding work, when the veil over nature's secrets suddenly seems to lift, and when what dark and chaotic appears in a clear and beautiful pattern. Gertie Corey. Hello, witches, women, and other magical listeners. I'm Hannah, the bipolar bisexual host of this bi-weekly podcast of Witches and Women. Of Witches and Women is a her story podcast in which I explore the lives and histories of women forgotten, ignored, and misrepresented. This season of the podcast includes interviews with amazing women in medicine today, as well as the stories of women who made medicine in the beginning and who have improved it all along the way. Women healers have historically been some of the first to be labeled as witches and the first to be oppressed, tortured, killed, and used for their knowledge. This season, we are honoring our magical legacy as caregivers, life bringers, and healers not only through stories on the podcast, but also through shorter, lesser-known stories in the Oracle newsletter. Be sure you and your coven are subscribed to the pod on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify, and subscribe to the Oracle at ofwitchesandwomen.com today. If we aren't already connected on social media, you can follow of Witches and Women on Instagram, Twitter, or even Facebook. Or if you would like to be featured on the podcast, DM me your favorite spell or charm, and I'll feature it at the end of an episode. This season of the Of Witches and Women podcast is sponsored by Lua Ray Clothing. Lua Ray Clothing is a women-owned and operated small business. Check out their online boutique stocked with high-quality women's clothing that is flattering, comfortable, current, and inclusive by visiting luaray, that's L-U-A-R-A-E dot com today. When you shop their seasonal collections, use the promo code WITCHES15 at checkout for a 15% discount. If you see something you love, order now because their collections sell out really quickly and we have that exclusive discount. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Emma Moulton. Emma is an MD PhD student at UCLA and working at Prelis Biologics as a project manager. Not only is Emma a student and lab manager, she and her sister Elise have started an online science learning platform for students to utilize during the pandemic called Eons Learning. Witches meet Emma. You've taken sort of the road less traveled by doing both the MD and the PhD. Why did you choose to do both? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's definitely a long path, but it's one that I want to do and one that I have been really dedicated to for a long time now. Um, Basically, I kind of just decided growing up that I wanted to be a doctor. There are probably a million and one reasons for that, not all of which I fully understand because it was just like, by the time I was three years old, I was the kid like running around the house in my dad's white coat. He's a psychiatrist pretending to be a superhero. And it was a lot of fun. And I just really loved like reading the New England Journal of Medicine, like at the age of 12. I was just a very nerdy child and really just was fascinated by the human body and like everything that can go wrong with it. And then especially as I started to get older and I started to have friends getting sick and everything, I started to see the more human side of that. And it really became more of just like more than just an interest and really like a passion of, okay, this is a real problem and I want to be a part of fixing this. And really what that showed me a lot of times was not just like the cool fun side of medicine, but the really uh, dark, sad side of it where it's like, 
yeah, medicine needs to change. Medicine has a lot of uh, room for growth. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm really part of making that change happen. Uh, so then when I got to college, um, I started doing research, um, basically because I knew that was part of what was needed uh, for that path and really, really loved it. Um, so I worked for a summer uh, after my freshman year uh, in Germany, actually, and it was in a like plant alternative splicing lab where I was collecting caterpillar saliva and watering plants and running uh, like a very standard molecular biology assay called the QPCR like all the time. And yet I loved it. Like I wanted to see the more applied side of the science, but the lab side was just so fun to me and such like this new concept that I was just like thrilled by. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a researcher now. I'm going to do this. I want to do this forever. And then really started to tie those together more and more, seeing how the research could tie into the medicine from the bench side, as well as like clinical trials and that sort of thing. And then really landed on MD-PhD when I ended up going to Kenya the following summer, where I worked basically in the hospital doing, I was an EMT, so I was doing like suturing and like delivering Mm -hmm. babies, whatever they did hands with. It was a very underfunded hospital. Um, but really saw in so many aspects, just like, again, the failures of medicine repeatedly and how much room for growth there still is. And um, yeah, I was just like, research can fix a lot of these problems, but I can't let go of the patient care side. Like, I love seeing the patients as sad as it can be sometimes, and I want to be part of that as well. So doing both. That's really cool to be able to have the perspective of both. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So what will be your specific emphasis when you graduate? There is still room for that to evolve, but my uh, major research interest is in immunology. And what that has um, been in the past, I've done a few different things. I've done autoimmune disease for a very short little bit. Um, I did uh, emerging infectious disease research uh, when I was at a biotech company in San Francisco called Prelis, including I was there. 2016 to 2018-ish, and then they brought me back uh, during COVID because my project was very relevant to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've also done cancer immunotherapy. So what this is, is basically hijacking the immune system to fight cancer. And that uh, has really been the most interesting to me. It's just like the self side of things, like sort of like this civil war going on inside your body and trying to balance like killing the cancer, but not hurting you. And um, yeah, so that's, I think, probably where I'll stay for a while, at least, is, is in the immunology side of things, and cool. uh, especially in cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was um, looking at Prelis before we started, and it says on their page that they are a bioprinting company. This is true. Um, so tell us a little bit about, a little more about your research there and what that m- means. Sure. Um, So I was actually the first employee there. So basically, um, I worked at this other little tiny biotech company uh, startup in the Bay Area for a couple months. That was where I was doing the autoimmune disease research. And then after like two months, they ended up failing, which was a whole like situation. (laughs) And my boss there was like, I'm going to go start a new company. You should come with me. And I was like, okay, sounds like fun. I got nothing else to do with my time. So that ended up being like a really amazing opportunity and taught me so much about being a scientist, about just like being a person, about um, Mm -hmm. the investment and business side of medicine and of research. It was just like a real big learning curve, but one that was so fascinating. Um, And so basically the foundation of the technology 
um, is this concept of two-photon printing. Uh, basically, two-photon microscopy is a very um, fine resolution, very fast, and very non-toxic sort of laser. Um, so this was something that my boss, Melanie Matthew, had um, studied during her PhD years, uh, doing actually imaging of uh, mouse lymph nodes, so mm. where the immune response in mice, mm -hmm. using this technology, and was like, I think we could reverse this around and use it to print very, very tiny structures, uh, but in a very scalable manner. Hmm. And these are two of the biggest problems in tissue engineering is that we can't print structures small enough like capillary beds, like nephrons, which are the main functional unit in your kidney, like alveoli, which are the functional unit in your lung, all these very tiny, very organized structures that need to exist exactly the way that they are in the body in order to work properly and that we can't recreate outside the body. So that's one of the major issues and two photon gets around that because we can print out this very, very tiny scale. And the other issue is that when you're two photon or, or when you're printing something in general, it's very difficult to uh, get the cells to stay alive long enough uh, for the printing process to take place. So most 3D printing takes like days and forever, um, especially to print like a very large structure like an organ, especially at a very fine resolution that would just be prohibitively long. But because it's a laser and a very fast one at that, uh, and because we integrated this holographic printing technology into it, basically you could like flash project a capillary and it'll just sort of not quite instantly appear, but that's the idea is that you're just magicking this Thing into existence and it's really cool that is really cool so theoretically um what you're working on is working towards printing like organs or things for transplants stuff like that yeah that is the long-term goal of the company um so where the immunology side of things comes into it is a very early stage project of ours that we were working on which really just pr trying to prove that we could get um any human tissue to work in a dish uh, in, like in a lab setting. So the first one we chose was lymph nodes because that's sort of what I was interested in. That's what uh, Melanie had done during grad school. Cool. And we were like, this could be a really cool application for making novel antibodies really quickly. And so we were able to 3D print lymph nodes, the structures that make antibodies in your body. Um, mm -hmm. We're basically able to put like 24 of these plus on a dish the side of an index card versus, uh, you know, to do that the way it's traditionally done would take a ton of money, ton of space, ton of dead mice. Very sad. Um, <laughs> and so we did that. We were able to um, stimulate them with Zika virus. Uh, so we're just adding virus plus some like the type of stuff you would see in a vaccine, some co-stimulatory agents in there with it to induce an immune response. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get proof of concept that we were able to make brand new, fully human antibodies in a dish this way in a matter of like really weeks, um, wow. which is way faster than anybody else can do it. Yeah, so that's, that's huge. hugely important, exactly, um, for really any antibody development. Mm -hmm. um, and because if you can speed up the process, you can make these very expensive treatments a lot cheaper and a lot more accessible. And you can really broaden the scope of. Uh, how you can apply these, mm -hmm. which is really, really cool idea. 
but also for emerging infectious diseases where you want a really fast turnaround time. Um, so this project ended up getting sort of pushed to the side for a little bit because we needed to focus on the capillary uh, nephron and uh, organ printing side of things. And then when COVID hit, we're like, well, we have this technology in our back pocket that can solve this problem. We need to address this again. So mm -hmm. I had been working at UCSF for a couple of years, uh, emailed her just to talk about like, oh, I got into med school. Also, how are, how's these little uh, lymph nodes going? And she's like, oh yeah, you should come back. <laughs> I was like, cool. I was getting ready to go to medical school. I was wanting to go on vacation, but I didn't get to obviously because COVID hit, so I couldn't go anywhere. So I was like, yeah, let's <laughs> cure COVID. Let's do this thing. So that was super fun. That's awesome. Yeah. So with COVID and with cancer research, which is obviously ever-changing and, you know, you're just moving forward, tell me a little bit about um, the research process and sort of what steps you have to take in order for something to be considered like a medical fact or a medical discovery. Because you can't I know people do, but like a, a professional can't just publish anything and be like, ah, so tell me what makes it credible. Yeah. Um, a lot of this comes back to like that scientific process thing that some people learned about, like in elementary school of just, you come up with a hypothesis and you design an experiment around it and you test it and you analyze your data and you come up with a new conclusion and go back and rework that a million times until you get to some new truth and really prove your hypothesis very solidly in that you can support everything that you're trying to say with mm -hmm. a piece of data. Um, so you can't just like throw an idea or a hypothesis into the conclusion section of a research paper and be like, yeah, we think this is why this is happening. You have to actually mm -hmm. then go and say, not only did we see that this is happening, but we explored why this is happening with a million different experiments, and this is why. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really great. It's a really good approach to be able to uh, really verify everything that we're doing scientifically. Um, but it can also be a little bit slow sometimes. So, you know, right now we're actually seeing research being sped up in a lot of cases, and some of these peer-reviewed type steps being skipped a little bit. And I think mm -hmm. there are pros and cons to that. Uh, the pros being that basically we're getting a lot more researchers to work together a lot more quickly. So I can see someone's preliminary data, I can work off of that, and I can continue to build on their hypothesis without having to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. But in the same turn, um, when that preliminary data gets out to the public, that's where it starts to become concerning of you know, they don't always have the skills necessary to be able to look at this piece of paper and to analyze it critically and say, these are the shortfalls of this research, this is where it probably is accurate, this is where we need to continue to study. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's what we can call fact. Definitely. I know for me, like I like to think, oh, I'm pretty good at logical fallacies, da da da, but I definitely can't look at a research article and understand all the medical terminology and mm -hmm. the conclusions drawn simply because that's not what I studied. Yeah, it's even beyond the jargon, it's its own language, it's mm -hmm. its own math, you got to do, you know, some statistics, you have to know not just like how to think logically, but how to think in sort of like a bulletproof way of 
not only did I show you that A creates B, but I showed you that C, D, E, F, and G cannot create B. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. For sure. I know there are, um, in that research process and coming to those ABC conclusions, you definitely do have to think in that sort of bulletproof way. And there are definitely different ways different people come to those conclusions. Um, so I have sort of a two-pronged question, which is what are the demographics of like research people and teams that you've worked with? And do you think different demographics, like um, a different makeup of women and people of color working on specific research would change like the type of, uh, the way that you approach and come to these conclusions or different conclusions? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it especially influences uh, the hypothesis that pe people are interested in. People tend to want to do research that affects them in some way. Yeah. Um, so the more diverse our researchers are, the more communities we have represented in our data and the more um, information that we have to help everyone and not just privileged white people. Mm -hmm. um, and so as far as the teams I've worked on, um, I've worked in some very homogenous environments. Like uh, I went to school, or I did my undergrad in Utah and I did research there and the labs were mostly white men. And uh, then when I moved out to San Francisco and was at that biotech, it was, you know, woman founded, for a while, it was just like an entirely female team. And then we started bringing in more people in these really diverse minds um, to be able to really contribute to this research. And so that was just like something that feels very powerful about having that like woman-led team. Um, and then at UCSF, that's an extremely diverse work environment and same here at UCLA. Um, and you definitely see the benefit of that. Uh, for example, like, Right now I do all these small groups with my medical school class and it's so many different people and so many different perspectives, not just in like color of their skin or like where they grew up, but their entire life story of people have done different types of research, people have worked in different settings, people care about different things. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have some people who really, really care about like palliative medicine. You have some people that really care about like me, the basic immunology sort of stuff. And so it's just really interesting to be able to bring in more voices that way and make sure that, you know, everyone is getting their voice heard and their um, community's issues represented in the research. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point that not only like, you know, surface level race, gender types mm -hmm. of visuals need to be represented, but the different types of medicine can exactly. also lead to different perspectives. Absolutely. Cool. We're seeing that a lot with COVID research as well, is that um, all these scientists from different fields who normally study very different things are all suddenly focused on the same issue. And we're getting a lot of insight into this one disease that way. Hmm. Um, and I can't say that's like all that everything should be moving forward because I mean if everyone were to just focus on one type of cancer like there are lots of diseases out there that we need to treat we need to sure. divide and conquer a little bit but it is so fascinating to be able to see all the perspectives of not just like basic immunology but the health disparities in COVID and um, mm -hmm. why it's affecting some populations more than others which is partially 
to do with the basic immunology. Some people just have different like glycoproteins that are the antibodies that produce these things. Some people just have different immune responses. If you're older, that's more likely to be a weaker immune response, which is more likely to cause damage in your lungs rather than actually providing a protective response with those antibodies. Um, sort of counterintuitively that way. And so you see a little bit on the basic side why some populations would be more vulnerable than others, especially the more elderly or immunocompromised people. Mm-hmm. But then on the health disparity side is where you're like, okay, yeah, no, black people don't have worse antibodies than white people. That's just not right. a scientific fact. They don't have as much access to healthcare in general because this country is really screwed up. Definitely, you know, different. Um, yeah, different issues there. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So right now where you are, you're mm-hmm. working on your um, medical degree and your PhD, and you've come like quite far. And obviously you have this whole life of like discoveries and research and learning ahead of you as well. If you were going to start over again, um, would you do the same thing? Or would you do it differently? Why or why not? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that my path would be identical if I did it again. Um, I think a lot of just what I ended up doing was sort of serendipitous in certain senses of like, I went to that uh, research lab in Germany because I wanted to go to Germany and thought that was a cool language. And I happened to sort of know the professor who was coordinating that research experience. Mm-hmm. And so that's like where I landed on research. And I came to this company, Prelis, because another company flopped and I didn't get into medical school the first time I applied and needed to do something in between. And that ended up being like a way better experience in the end. Um, mm-hmm. But it also wasn't something that I had planned on doing. Um, and it also was like a major detour from where I originally envisioned myself going. I can't say the path would look exactly the same, but I can say that it worked out fine the way it did. Yeah, I think I've seen it a lot in business um, because I worked more in that, but not, of course, I haven't worked in science. But there's definitely this like failure and innovation and things, they lead to growth and they take us to where we need to go, which is great. So to conclude, tell us about your project that you're working on now, Eon Learning. Yeah, sure. So this is an online homeschool that is really uh, based around technically the seventh grade curriculum. It's definitely an advanced seventh grade curriculum and uh, designed to be for a more advanced student, but really just fundamentals of science of what should I, as a 21st century citizen, who is not necessarily going to be a scientist, but who is going to be you know, some leader in some field, or maybe just some person who wants to be able to communicate with my doctor, or understand if a research paper is complete bogus, or if it actually has some valid information in it, like we were talking about. Yep. People don't do that. Um, and really just rethinking the skills that you need to have in order to be able to do that in our modern uh, society. Because a lot of the way that school is currently structured is just like, you come to class, you do the work, you sit down for eight hours, and, you know, at the end of the day, you are prepared to um, work in some big company, you are prepared to be a follower and not a leader. 
Mm -hmm. um, you move on. And so what we really want to do is create a new generation of leaders who can think very critically about not only science and those issues that we're facing, but also the world more broadly. So we've created this curriculum very mindfully. It's an online program, which is ideal timing right now because you know there's a lot of homeschooling or partially at school at home things happening um is this something anyone can access tell me a little bit about the accessibility absolutely it's completely free to use and it's online so if you have internet access you have access to this course and i think the most amazing thing about that is that you know, it doesn't necessarily remove the barrier of you still have to have some requisite background knowledge. We try to start it at an intro level and then build up so that you don't have to have as much background knowledge and anyone can access it in that sense. Mm -hmm. But anyone can use it. And in many senses, we know it's not going to be the course for everyone. People just have different learning styles. Some people don't learn as well online. Some people learn way better online. Uh, sure. I'm one of those people personally who I just don't like to sit in a classroom and listen to other people talk about things or get confused about things that I understood three seconds ago. And then you brought up a really weird point that I'm like, wait, what are they saying? Am I, should mm -hmm. I be, allow myself to be confused by that? Um, so it's really just self-directed learning that is uh, teaching, again, the science and also the skill of just self-motivation and figuring stuff out on your own and looking stuff up on the internet and finding reliable sources to tell you about stuff. Um, so sure. I think there are a lot of advantages to it. And coming back to your main question, the point is anyone can access it. Awesome. How did you, like, what triggered you to start Eons Learning? Yeah, uh, this started as a little passion project of mine many moons ago. Uh, about eight years ago now, almost, that where um, basically my brother, he was going into seventh grade at the time, and he was thinking of doing online learning because he was not getting uh, very much out of his school system. Mm -hmm. um, and my dad was sort of like, can you come up with some sort of like online modules or something or some places he should go to look for this information or what like resources on the internet are even good? Like, where should I start? And mm -hmm. From there, I realized this is a huge problem, and it's hard to find um, a good curriculum on the internet. Like it, it's yeah. okay in terms of resources, and I think it's getting better. Mm -hmm. Like there are tons of amazing things out there, especially like on YouTube or just like random little modules on the internet. But it's not sewn together in a sort of cohesive way to where you could fully like direct your own learning and say, I need to start with this concept, then I go to this concept, then I watch this video and this one and this one and this one. And we've also sort of curated like the selection of those videos of, these are the good videos that'll actually teach you something in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to that, we have our own like written information and activities and so many other things to help supplement that experience and little quizzes to help test yourself um, and all that, that sort of thing that helps to accompany and sew together your learning, uh, mm -hmm. but without neglecting the fact that we're not the only online course out there, we're not the only online resource, and again, why reinvent the wheel when there are some amazing things already there? True, good point. So are you guys going to expand, um, or are you just working on this for now? Definitely. 
Um, so we are currently working on making some of our own YouTube videos. Uh, like cool. I said, there are some really good ones out there, but there are some places where um, as I was making this course and trying to find videos, it was just like, you know what, there aren't any good videos on this topic out there. Or the ones that are there explain it either at too advanced of a level or too simple of a level and there's not really anything for the average person in between. Or we found like, oh, maybe this is really good at explaining this step-by-step -step process in a way that helps you memorize it very easily, but there's nothing anywhere explaining why this happens or what the concept behind this is. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are working on doing that as well to help uh, make some videos to supplement it. And in addition to that, we are looking to expand uh, next to eighth grade the following year after this, um, which will be a lot more biology of like, uh, this year we focus a lot on energy and carbohydrate metabolism and cell respiration and that sort of fun stuff. Um, whereas next year it's more uh, DNA to RNA to protein, that sort of idea from the biology side. Uh, and building on some chemistry principles, some physics principles in addition to that. Well, thank you, Emma. This has been very informative, very fun. You are doing really cool work in like several different areas, which sounds busy and overwhelming and amazing. A little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> All of the above. Our wonderful woman in medicine today is Gertie Corey. Gertie was born in Prague in 1896 and named after an Austrian warship. Despite the fact that women were pushed to the edges of schooling, Gertie outworked the men around her and was accepted to medical school. She met her husband Carl in an anatomy class and they married in 1920. Gertie and Carl immigrated to the US in 1922 and ended up collaborating at work. Despite co-authoring many important research papers with her husband and publishing peer-reviewed research by herself, Gertie had trouble finding work, while Carl procured a position without much trouble because sexism. Gertie did pioneering research on thyroid conditions and pediatric blood disorders. At the Roswell Park Cancer Institute in New York, the director threatened to fire Gertie if she continued her research alongside her husband. But nah. Together, Gertie and Carl and another colleague, Bernardo Husse, pioneered the research on what is now known as the Cori cycle, which is when the body breaks glycogen into lactic acid and resynthesizes it as an energy. They also designated the catalyzing compound called Cori ester. So, for this important discovery, Gertie and her colleagues were awarded a Nobel Prize in 1947. Gertie was only the third woman to receive a Nobel Prize in science, and the first to earn the award in physiology and medicine. After leaving Roswell, many universities offered Carl positions, but none would consider hiring Gertie as a research professor. Finally, Washington University agreed to hire Gertie, but she had to work for an additional 13 years before attaining the same professorial status her husband was offered upon hire. After winning the Nobel Prize, Gertie was offered more prestige and awards, given honorary degrees at Boston University, Smith College, Yale, Columbia, and the University of Rochester. Gertie was appointed by President Truman as a board member of the National Science Foundation, 
where she served until her death in 1957. Throughout her life, Gertie continued her research on the body, providing many insights that medical researchers have continued to build on, especially in the field of diabetes and other endocrine-related illnesses. Gertie's other work with x-ray machines and research on the skeletal system may have even contributed to her early death as she died of a bone marrow disease at 61. Her colleagues have said Gertie was constantly in the laboratory. She loved her work, she was brilliant, quick-witted, never stopped pursuing her goals and interests. She was an experimentalist as well as a perfectionist, and she had a brilliant scientific mind and the determination to fight for her rights and needs. Gertie Corey is an inspiration for many reasons. She was a brilliant medical researcher, a successful scientist, and a pioneer for women in STEM fields. She is also a shining example of knowing your worth, both in marriage and in her work. Many people theorize that Mileva, Albert Einstein's first wife and a brilliant physicist in her own right, was responsible for many of his theories and discoveries. She certainly assisted in research at the very least and may have been the actual big brains on many of Albert's breakthroughs. However, unlike Carl Corey, Albert Einstein didn't see his wife as an equal. He happily took all the credit for himself, and Milieva is mostly forgotten. Her professional life never went anywhere, and Einstein is hailed as a hero. My heart breaks for her, and it makes stories like Gertie's all the more important. The saying that behind every successful man is a strong woman is broken. In a true partnership, be it professional, personal, or both, each partner, male or female, needs to acknowledge their partner as an integral part of their success. And to place a woman contributor behind a man in a support role only is incredibly dismissive and small-minded. We don't need men like that, and we are tired of them. Women, let's work together or alone, but never behind. Gertie was integral to the discovery of the Cori cycle, and she knew that. She boldly took up space, and she was pushed down time and time again, but she pushed back and broke many glass ceilings on her way to the top, which is where she belonged. Witches Let's Talk Shop, the magical of witches and women shop. If you haven't explored the website yet, you need to. Ofwitchesandwomen.com has a great little shop full of merch from witchy teas and tanks to stickers, posters, mugs, and more. You can even get a witch's familiar collar tag for your fur baby or a witchling onesie for your human baby in the shop. So go exploring today at ofwitchesandwomen.com. The website also has tons of great resources like show notes for each episode in the Lamia Library, the Grimoire Gallery full of stunning contemporary artwork by artists of today, and of course, every page of the ofwitchesandwomen.com website. You can sign up for the Oracle newsletter at the bottom of the page and get access to obscure stories, artist biographies, and more. This season, as our little contribution to the pandemic madness, the proceeds from all the Witches Made Medicine merch will be donated to a healthcare organization that we will choose over the summer. So visit ofwitchesandwomen.com today and get your Witches Made Medicine merch, starting at just $3.50.
Today's spell is a simple moonlit grounding spell. At night, during a moon phase that is important to you, find some moonlight, either outside or near a window, and stand in your bare feet. Nice and tall. Think about the ground, strong and solid against your feet. Think about the moonlight, how it waxes and wanes and repeats. Bend at the waist and let your hands brush as close to the ground as you can. Then slowly stand up and stretch your arms up to the sky, facing the moon. Repeat three times, thinking about the cycles in nature and your own life. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure you and your squad are subscribed to Of Witches and Women on Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify. And please write me a magical review on your podcast app so others can find and enjoy the show as well. Thanks for listening and sharing. You make my days each a little bit more magical as I get to research and write these incredible stories. Be sure to connect with me in the pod on social media and look up of witchesandwomen.com for even more great content, merchandise, and to subscribe to the Oracle. Stay fierce, witches, and I'll catch you next time. Of Witches and Women is brought to you by SHH Media, LLC.